Welcome to Big Ideas in Supply Chain, where we connect with supply chain experts and industry professionals to explore how all the stuff we need ends up in the right place at the right time. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Big Ideas in Supply Chain. I'm your host, Jenny Reese, joined by my co-host, Eli. You know him well. And today we've got uh, a guest, Brian Palma, with us, who's from Canaxis on today. So um, uh, after Eli says hi, I'll let Brian go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do at Canaxis. Hey, everybody. Jenny, it's been a good minute since we've done this. I know, uh, you know, we just had our, our third kid. There's probably a supply chain joke in there somewhere about supply and demand and capacity with with sleep and effort and all that kind of thing. But you know, I'm pumped. Uh, we've we've been able to connect again and and have Brian on the show today. Hey, Brian. And to clarify, we means Eli and his wife. Yes, yes, not Jenny and I. <laughs> not but, me. You, know, you can imagine There's the hurricane no that that might that. be. <laughs> no demand nor supply. So. <laughs> Welcome, Brian. I'm glad you clarified that. Um, thanks. I'm very happy to be here. Brian Palma, as uh, you mentioned, Jenny, I'm on the Canaxis team. Uh, my focus on Canaxis is within the retail industry team. So I'm a, a big part of my job is to provide insights and thought leadership uh, to our customers and our community about what's going on in retail. And you've been on both sides of the fence in retail. Is that right in terms of like procurement, um, like a practitioner, as well as on the uh, like the enablement side with software, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, part of my story too, and just to give some background, I I um, was on the RubyCloud team, um, which was acquired this year by Canaxis. So happy to join through that acquisition. But yes, at RubyCloud, we were very focused on the retail industry, bringing uh, solutions to a lot of our customers to the software side. But yes, yeah, so on both ends of the spectrum, so I'm happy to talk about uh, what life was like in retail on the retail side, but also now that I've been on the other side of the coin, how important that software and AI and automation side is too. So Brian, I think an interesting part, and, and you know, by no means are we trying to belabor this point, like we've, we've, we've covered this in, in previous episodes of the podcast, but I made a joke to Jenny when we were uh, prepping for this. You know the parts in in movies where you know typically like an action movie or a superhero movie where you know the 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 protagonist sees you know things kind of happening in slow motion and can kind of see where things are going and and things like that. When all of this disruption happened, you know I think more than anybody, and I never thought I would meet somebody in my life who could relate. To what was going on, but but you had some previous experience working at Target. So, tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you know that experience shaped you in terms of you know where you're at in your career and how you kind of see things playing out these days. Yeah. So, uh, just to give some background, so my life in Target, we'll go super deep into it. Before I was at Target, I was uh, on the CPG side selling to retailers like Target. So for me, at that point um, in my career, being part of the retail world was you know, an absolute interesting and exhilarating experience. And the, the role that I played within Target when I was there uh, was specifically on the Canadian team as a buyer, which a, a lot of retailers will refer to buyers category manager. I think we can kind of, you know, interchange those, those roles here. But essentially, my role was to determine assortment, determine pricing, promotions, everything around um, what 
the guests or the customers see at a Target store. And the interesting part or the part that I think we'll have the most fun with is the first category that I worked on was the household paper category, which included multiple categories such as facial tissue, paper towel. Uh, but I think what we maybe want to talk about, or I'm sure you guys will have some questions about, is uh, the toilet paper category or the, the bath tissue category, as I would describe it. <laughs> I'm smiling so big right now. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. It's just so ridiculous that, hey, here we are talking about toilet paper again on the podcast. Um, and that we just happen to have an expert uh, in-house here that can tell us pretty much everything we want to know about it. So uh, kismet, if you will, COVID kismet. So Eli, I'm sure you have questions, but Brian, what can you tell us about, I know, I realize you're not in that role anymore, but what do you think has most changed uh, in terms of fulfilling demand on on that side? Yeah, I think the the big thing, if we go back to, call it the summer, the spring, when it was all about toilet paper. There were parts of me that uh, wished that I could kind of help navigate through that. But at the same time, knowing what a beast of a category toilet paper is, did not envy those retailers that had to manage this weird kind of spike in demand of toilet paper. Uh, but, I think, but I think the big thing to think about, if, if I could compare from my days to now, a lot of my role when I was in the thick of it as the toilet paper buyer was really thinking about assortment. So what type of toilet paper am I actually carrying? What brands are they? Uh, what price point are they? And the quality, which is a whole other topic we can get into. But once that assortment is decided, then you essentially have to translate that into supply chain, into inventory. As you can imagine, with toilet paper being bulky products, only so much can live on a store shelf. And when these things go on sale, you need more than whatever's on the store shelf capacity. And that's why you'll see a lot of toilet paper pallets on the floor at, say, a Walmart or a Target. Um, so the shift to that from uh, what had happened in the summer is because of the spike in demand, uh, people were going into stores buying toilet paper and they were out of stock. But the big piece that's really made an acceleration today and this year is what about all of that online purchase? What about all of those extra warehouses? And how do you think about stores as a warehouse? So when you're thinking about um, demand and, and customers going in to buy toilet paper and not seeing the product on shelf, it's not always uh, a factor of is the retailer out of stock? It's probably more about are they out of stock in that particular place to get the product? Because it could be that over you know their Southwest DCs, or distribution centers, they've got a ton of toilet paper there, but because of the way that they've allocated their supply, they're unable to meet any of the needs in, say, the northeast region of their store. So I think that it, that's a kind of big point to call out where uh, supply chain is really complex. And if anything, this year has taught a lot of retailers to think, you know, a lot more uh, flexible or agile about, you know, the way that they can kind of move inventory around. And I mean... Uh, Aside from that, or in addition to that, it's also just being able to predict demand um, in situations that have never occurred before in the past. And because this was obviously unpredicted or unpredictable demand to an extent, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, especially in that in that spring season, would you say that it's not that it would be impossible to you know get things from from regional DCs to other regional DCs, but the, the drive in price is 
mostly based on logistics. So the prices are going up because of probably logistical issues as opposed to demand issues. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure, the, I think pricing when it comes to um, how deep should you promote uh, toilet paper before COVID, before the pandemic, it was a lot more competitive where it's literally um, a couple of cents lower on whatever toilet paper is on sale is what's going to drive a customer to that particular retailer. Uh, but this year is more about whoever's in stock. That's where I'm going to get my toilet paper. I don't care what the price is. I just need my toilet paper. So I think that's the dynamic that's starting to change. Although price will still continue to be important because in a case where, say, two or three retailers have that inventory and have that stock available, um, typically, at least in the, in the toilet paper category, the next uh, decision-making uh, factor is which is cheaper or which is better value. So, you know, for sure, pricing and promotions will always be a big part of toilet paper or any type of essential category, like home category in retail. Uh, but more and more now, it, that strategy works only as much as you have stock. I, you know, it's funny. I, I laughed at Jenny's comment there. You like, we would have a lot of comments on the toilet paper thing. And um, I think the one thing that uh, people realize in all of this is just kind of how real this whole situation hit everybody, right? And so, you know, you've been involved in this space for for most of your life. And I'm just wondering, like, when you're on that other side of it, right, like in your previous roles, do you feel that like yourself, maybe within your colleagues at the time, like, do you, do you feel, I don't want to necessarily call it pressure, but like everybody got the sense of what was happening. I mean, we all felt it in our, in our personal lives, but like when you're, when you're in that role, how much does the public perception of things or, or how people are feeling in general, like, is that felt within, within, you know, not only yourself, but but the people you used to work with, you think? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I would say 100%. Let's use the word pressure. I think for sure, pressure was a um, you know a big theme or an underlying theme, whether it's pre-COVID or not. Uh, as a retailer, especially when you're working on categories that actually drive traffic into the store, like if you look at any flyer, any web page, chances are, um, like for, from a mass uh, merchant retailer point of view there's some sort of essential good on the front cover, whether it be toilet paper or, you know, some sort of food staple, there's something in there that's going to drive you to that store to say, Hey, looks like toilet paper is 60% off. I'm going to go to target and then pick up everything else while I'm there. Um, so I think that that dynamic uh, continues, uh, but to the point of the pandemic, it just, it adds so much more complexity to it because it's not just about do I have the right price, but do I actually have the inventory for that? And do I have it available in both stores and online? And if I have it online, how quickly can it get delivered to somebody's home or shipped to the store? So all that dynamic just adds to the pressure. If I were doing this target role today, it wouldn't just be about price. Like I could talk all day about how, how much uh, price itself and promotions within toilet paper cause that pressure within any retailer that sells this category. Uh, but to then take um, this additional external pressure of, you know, having that inventory in store really can make or break retailers in terms of, uh, you know, whether you're deciding to go out, um, put on a mask and go to a retailer and shop, um, but you want to make sure that you have everything there because you don't want to necessarily be going to two retailers to get something. Or if you're, if you think of it from an online perspective, you don't want to be 
um, potentially buying from two retailers, knowing that there could be um, that minimum order quantity that you need to hit the free shipping. So there's all those dynamics where um, they're, they're not the most sexy things in terms of like delivery time and inventory. Uh, but, but without that, the customer perception, to your point, Eli, uh, really is, you know, it, it's like customers are taking score. Like any time that I'm, say, looking for toilet paper, whether that's, you know, every two months or whatnot, if I'm comparing Walmart versus Target, if, say, Walmart doesn't have what I want in stock, then I'm basically buying uh, my toilet paper at Target plus all the other essential shampoo and, you know, some some toys or whatever I, whatever I want to uh, get for the holiday season kind of thing. Um, so my mind share is totally out of Walmart and it's all in Target because I'm totally immersed in their website and all the boxes that I'll be getting to my home are all Target branded. So to your point, it's I feel like now we're in, we're in less of a or we're more in a world where um, you're a lot heavier focused on you know one or two or three retailers based on the convenience factor of being able to get everything in one go because the, the the days where you would kind of go shopping around and you know pick up uh, stuff from one store and then check out another store for a different specialty it's obviously a lot less uh, prevalent now and and I think retailers need to think about that because um, a lot of consumers and customers are really changing their habits and and the more and more we're you know in this pandemic the the more those habits are going to stick or be harder to break come 2021 and beyond yeah it's a great point um you know it's all about getting a captive audience whatever channel mm -hmm. that's in brick and mortar you know online whatever um and you know i think it's it's also important that you pointed out these are already complicated categories um, these kind of essential items, because yes, they are bulky. They also have many different attributes that are based on completely on personal preference um, in terms of buying patterns and that sort of consumer data that's collected. Um, so price really is kind of out the way. It's kind of like the last thing on the list right now. I always say, you know, if you want to charge women 20 bucks for a box of tampons, you can do it because they're going to buy them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, um, any way you look at it, people are willing to pay what it costs to get essential mm. items now. So what I'm wondering is to get the captive audience that you're talking about to sort of reel those people in so they can get all of their needs in one place, which is why, of course, we're seeing big box stores like Walmart and Target doing so well throughout the pandemic, as well as obviously Amazon. Um, how do you parse all of this consumer data and, and boil it down um, to make sure that you do have inventory in the right places at the right time for the right people um, in the right distribution centers available, you know, omni-channel. How can retailers who clearly weren't prepared for this possibly um, make this work now? What's the solution? Yeah, I mean, it's totally a loaded question. Um, but I think the way that I would think about it is, you know, along the idea of hyper-prioritization, it's, I mean, easier said than done. Um, but when you're looking at how to prioritize within a retail business, um, it, it can't be done, you know, in, in a silo. Or if you think of like myself, if I were to go back to my target days, I like, again, toilet paper wasn't the only category I had. So I actually had, you know, over a thousand SKUs. So I'm looking at for every single SKU, um, what's the right price? When am I promoting it? Do I have inventory? How long will that inventory last? Uh, for me to just manage that day to day was already, in a way, overwhelming. Um, so then, if you if you then add any other you know additional hyper prioritization, 
that just means endless hours looking at Excel sheets, you know, just making refreshing a report, refreshing a file, and just making sure that every little uh, bit of information is um, is accounted for. And I think part of the solution, and we're already seeing a lot of it now, is just you know the idea of how do you take all of that big data or that data in a retailer and automate it in a way so that myself as a human call it, you know, as a buyer, I want to be spending time on just those exceptions. So I may not be worried so much about, say, my uh, disposable tabletop, maybe facial tissue is in a good position. It's, it's typically not the highest um, sales driver, but what I really want to focus on is, say, the toilet paper and the paper towel. Um, so if I could have call it everything except those two key categories somewhat automated in a way that I know that I have the right price, I have the right promotion set, and my inventory is in a good situation, then I can hyper-prioritize by saying, okay, I only need to look at the um, the issues that, I'm, that, I, that has been flagged to me from a toilet paper specific point of view. That way I can spend all or a good chunk of my time kind of problem-solving things that say maybe an automated uh, machine may not be able to do. So, so I think it's, it's finding that balance, but even being uh, more deliberate on how we're using technology to actually make that easy. Because, you know, back in the day when I, when I was at Target, it was a lot of Excel sheets. You know, there were, we had software, but for the most part, we'd had to be, you know, downloading a version um, into an Excel file and, you know, using pivot tables and using different planning forms to have you know, special requests for promotions, and that just was not manageable. So, uh, and I know a lot of retailers that we spoke, have been speaking to, um, it's obviously still a thing, and if not, um, or obviously now a lot more important and a lot more necessary, and a lot of times um, Band-Aid solutions are kind of um, applied to it. So especially now where it's all about, or, or probably more so say April, May, it's more about react, 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 I think now that retailers are starting to understand that React, React, React takes a lot of time, a lot of resources, is, and isn't sustainable. A lot of retailers are trying to think about what does 2021, 2022 look like? What's you know the technology, the process, the the people? How do I reposition my people so that they're working on the high value activities that require more of that human nuance versus the pieces that could probably be more automated from a data point of view, from an inventory point of view, those things that may not require as much human nuance shouldn't be taking up and sucking time out of um, the valuable time and resource that we have from the, the people doing the work. So I think it's kind of striking that balance and, and trying to get ahead of it as, as much as possible because as much as some, some people or some organizations might think, let's try to just get 2020 out of the way, it's not like 2021 things are just going to go back to normal. And I think that's the, the kind of key thing when we're thinking about future planning for, for retail. Yeah. We're, we, we're not restarting the clock on uh, January. Yeah, 1st, so. I'd, I'd lo I love the idea, but yeah, I think it'll be a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. I like the idea of, uh, you know, I think some people were calling it now the hue machine. So uh, essentially letting the robots do the dirty work and uh, leaving the more, like you said, nuanced tasks to uh, the people that you you pay a lot of money to think about it. <laughs> mm, exactly. I was going to make a joke about robots doing the dirty work because all this talk of toilet paper, but it's just, it, you can't, we're not there yet. We're not. I feel like we haven't gotten there. deep enough. I, think <laughs> knows. I will go on record and say, folks, we're not there yet. Um, Brian, as you were talking, and I know we're kind of coming up towards the end of our, our time, but 
Um, I know, and, and Jenny would know this too very well, you've um, helped co-author uh, a new report that kind of covers the future retail. So as you were kind of talking about uh, trends, not necessarily like in too much depth, but the implication of technology versus the way things were done before. Um, what if, you know, for the listeners, what, what can people look forward to uh, learning or, or uh, hearing about in, in the new report that you're working on? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, two of the, the big themes that are, are covered in that paper um, we kind of touched on. So the idea of, um, you know, omni-channel, you hear that as a buzzword, but really getting down into the weeds in terms of what that means for your supply chain and, and what pieces you can automate. Um, the second piece being just the general automation of things. Um, so processes and when it comes to promotion planning, how can we take a lot of that manual work out and um, have it automated so that, you know, to Jenny's point, let's get the, the humans working um, because that, that human nuance is important and it's not going away and it's necessary for innovation for growth. Um, it's just a matter of finding that right balance. So the paper gets into that um, in a little bit of detail. The, the one thing we didn't touch on that I can kind of maybe leave as um, a, a carrot for, for the audience is just around the thought of private label. And, you know, as consumers, a lot of people are probably seeing, for example, on Amazon, you'll see Amazon Basics brands being promoted a little bit more. Um, Target is also known for um, some of their brands. We, we've seen in, in a lot of our retail reports that private label is growing. Uh, so I think that's something too, when you think about supply chain, private label provides retailers with a little bit more uh, control in their supply chain. Essentially, they're taking the role of a manufacturer or of a consumer packaged goods company. So, so we get into kind of themes like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe I'll leave it at that, but, but there's definitely a lot more uh, detail in, in the paper, uh, especially in terms of the, the machine learning um, and automation uh, themes that we've talked about. Yeah, great. I'd love the, uh, the idea of vertical integration. would love to have you back on at some point to discuss that as well in terms of white labeling. Um, so Brian, where can our audience find uh, the paper that you've co-authored on this? Yeah, so we will have that available shortly on the uh, canaxis.com site. Um, so we can share all those details, I assume, in the show notes. Uh, mm -hmm. But for the most part, you'll be able to, or you'll also see on canaxis.com slash, uh, or if you go into industries, you can uh, check out the retail industry page specifically to get more information about uh, kind of the, the retail thought leadership and, and content that we have. Okay, perfect. So, uh Listeners, if you want to access the paper, we'll link you in the episode notes. And then if you want to learn more about Brian's role at Canaxis and what they're doing in the retail space, uh, just go to Canaxis.com and uh, you can search through industries and find more information on retail there. So with that, I'll close us out. Brian, thank you so much for uh, enlightening our toilet paper <laughs> audience <laughs> once again. I mean, we just can't get enough. So... <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Of course. Thank you both.